and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, bringing you everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments of mental illness. All that brought to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and in an effort to better inform the general public about mental health issues as well as to reduce the stigma about having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. And welcome to this edition of Psychiatry Today, which was pre-recorded for initial airing on Wednesday evening, January 25th, 2017. Uh, I'm going to start tonight's podcast with a federal advisory panel's report about the health effects of marijuana. Uh, This was released back on the 12th, and they had some very interesting things to say about it. Those of you who have been listening to this podcast for a while know that I'm not in favor of legalizing or decriminalizing recreational use of marijuana, and that while I do see an important use for it medically in some cases, uh, that would not include simply just smoking joints or bongs or anything else to treat an illness. You know, there are highly specialized formulations of cannabis that are used for medical purposes. Um, I think it's high time, (laughs) no pun intended, that a federal health panel came out with a report about the effects of it, and, you know, hopefully this is just a sign that the authorities are going to pay closer attention to it. You know, it's ironic because it's still illegal federally, and yet there are more and more states who have legalized recreational use, and uh, that inherent conflict there, I think, has held back some needed research that should be done on its health effects. Nonetheless, I think it's important uh, to go over with you the findings, and uh, I'm going to bring them to you and discuss them with you, whether they support my point of view or not. Well, among the uh, other things that the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine found is that marijuana can almost certainly ease chronic pain. Uh, Certainly a good thing and perhaps uh, a better way for some people to address their chronic pain than taking opiates, which can be very addictive, as we know, and have very severe health consequences. And there is a growing epidemic of overdoses of uh, opiate painkillers, narcotic painkillers. It also might help some people sleep. 
but it also might raise the risk of getting schizophrenia and trigger heart attacks. Now, um, the experts also called for a national effort to learn more about marijuana and its chemical cousins, including similarly acting compounds. And as a group, these chemicals are all called cannabinoids. The current lack of scientific information poses a public health risk. According to the report, patients, healthcare professionals, and policymakers need more evidence to make sound decisions. I think that's a very important point. You have here a lot of states legalizing recreational use, with a lot of states approving more and more medical uses for it, yet we don't have enough information, and that lack of information, uh, I agree, poses a public health risk. <clears throat> for marijuana users or those considering it, there's very little information to guide them on the amounts and the health risks. That, according to Dr. Marie McCormick of the Harvard School of Public Health, she uh, headed the committee that came up with this report. Several factors have limited research. And I was alluding to this before. While the federal government has approved some medicines containing ingredients found in marijuana, for example, there's a, a drug called Marinol, which is uh, an oral form. Uh, it's very tightly controlled. Uh, doctors have to register to be able to prescribe it, and uh, it's only used for very few specific indications. But the federal government still classifies marijuana as illegal and imposes restrictions on research. So scientists have to jump through bureaucratic hoops that some find daunting. A federal focus on paying for studies of potential harms has also hampered research into possible health benefits. The range of marijuana products available for study has also been restricted. I think that's a good point. Uh, if your research is too focused on looking at harms, you know, that's, that's also going to stifle the effort to see what's really going on. So I think it's important that this report sought to be more balanced. What are the benefits? What are the detriments? What are the risks? 28 states and the District of Columbia have legalized marijuana for a variety of medical uses, and eight of those states, plus the District of Columbia, have also legalized it for recreational use. The report lists nearly 100 conclusions about marijuana and its similarly acting chemical cousins, drawing on studies published since 1999. Committee members cautioned that most conclusions are based on statistical links between use and health rather than direct demonstrations of cause and effect. The review found strong evidence that marijuana can treat chronic pain in adults and that similar compounds ease nausea from chemotherapy with varying degrees of evidence for treating muscle stiffness, 
and spasms in multiple sclerosis. Now, the finding that it helps ease nausea from cancer chemotherapy is nothing new, but it's nice that the committee reinforced something that's uh, been a, a long proposed use of medical marijuana. Uh, the varying degrees of evidence they found for treating muscle stiffness, but especially the spasms in multiple sclerosis. I sincerely hope that that will spur more research because uh, I know that I've had several patients over the years who had multiple sclerosis. This, the muscle spasms can be extremely debilitating and there's uh, a lot of patients who don't get relief from the typical medications that doctors would prescribe to treat that. Now, <clears throat> the limited evidence says that marijuana or the other compounds can boost appetite in people with HIV or AIDS. That's somewhat surprising. I would have thought the evidence for that were stronger. Um, and then also uh, limited evidence that it may ease symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. That I don't particularly find surprising. Uh, Post-traumatic stress disorder is an illness that causes very, very severe anxiety. And marijuana is well known to cause anxiety in vulnerable people. So I'm not surprised they didn't find much to support that helps with PTSD. The report said it's not enough there's not enough research to say whether these uh, compounds, these chemical compounds as a group are effective for treating cancers or irritable bowel syndrome or epilepsy or certain symptoms of Parkinson's disease or helping people beat addictions. Now that part I found interesting, especially the epilepsy part. Uh, <clears throat> one reason the big push for cannabis oil to be approved for medical use here in Georgia was to treat serious intractable seizures, especially in children. Uh, so the fact that there's not enough research to document that these chemicals help with epilepsy, you know, I found a little bit odd. A lot of parents have come out very strongly in favor of getting that approved because it's the only thing they have found to get their children to stop having seizures. Uh, likewise, if I'm not mistaken, of the very limited approved uses for cannabis oil in Georgia includes Parkinson's disease, which, again, they said didn't find enough evidence to support using it for that. Now, as far as evidence for effective medical uses for marijuana, we may have more information soon. There is a study in Colorado that's taking place. Uh, it says, the, the report says it's for investigating the use of marijuana to, to treat PTSD symptoms in veterans. Well, we'll see how that goes. Okay, now as to the potential harms of marijuana, 
Here is where it gets a little bit interesting and should give pause to people who are strong proponents of either legalization or of widening medical uses of marijuana. So I definitely want to spend some more time talking about the harms. First of all, and very scary uh, finding, strong evidence links marijuana to the use of developing schizophrenia and other causes of psychosis, the highest risk among most frequent users. Uh, this has been found to be the case in many different studies that chronic frequent heavy use of marijuana can increase the risk of schizophrenia. There's also some evidence that it may be the other way around. The schizophrenics tend to use or abuse it more. Uh, but in any case, we're going to take a commercial break here. We'll continue our discussion about this after that. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about a federal advisory committee came out with a report earlier this month on the health benefits and health risks of marijuana. Now, right before the break, I was telling you one of the findings is that it can increase the risk of developing schizophrenia. There's been a lot of research on this subject. The consensus is that it certainly would be more of an issue for someone who already had a genetic predisposition toward that illness and um, again also much more likely in someone with very frequent very heavy regular use as opposed to the casual uh, occasional user but still something very strongly to be considered in a climate of more than half the states having approved it for medical uses 
and uh, 8 plus the District of Columbia for recreational use. There is also some work that suggests a small increased risk for developing depressive disorders, but there's no evidence either way on whether it affects the course of symptoms of such disorders or the risk of developing post-traumatic stress disorder, never mind trying to treat the symptoms of PTSD. Now, what the report doesn't mention, and I find a little bit surprising, is that marijuana is well known to cause or aggravate anxiety in people who are vulnerable to becoming severely anxious. The stories of people becoming completely unglued the first time they get high on marijuana and insist that their friends bring them to the hospital emergency room are apocryphal, but most people know someone who has had that happen to them. And what's going on there in that case is it is inducing a panic attack in the user. And uh, so, you know, it's a vivid illustration of how it can increase anxiety in those who are vulnerable to it. Uh, this is something that should give states pause who have already legalized recreational use. There is a strong indication that using marijuana before driving increases the risk of a traffic accident. But there is no clear link to workplace accidents or injuries or death from a marijuana overdose. Well, uh, you know, I know in states like Colorado, one of the first to um, legalize it, or, or fairly recently in any case after, say, Washington, the authorities are trying to develop driving while high parameters and rules and you know how do they test for that what are the appropriate limits and so on it's a lot trickier than looking for impaired driving from alcohol with that you just do a breathalyzer it takes a matter of a few seconds and you immediately know someone's blood alcohol level and there are well established norms for what would be safe uh, in terms of a blood alcohol level and being able to operate a motor vehicle. None of that exists for marijuana. So the authorities are having to scramble to come up with ways to judge if someone is driving drugged, as it were, uh, as opposed to driving drunk. And, um, you know, how to handle that what rules to apply. There is also limited evidence for the idea that marijuana hurts school achievement, which is not surprising given that we know it interferes with attention and memory, and that it raises unemployment rates or harms social functioning. Well, the raising unemployment rates doesn't sound Outrageous. I mean, if someone is spending more and more time getting high, it is going to impair their ability to work, and they may be a less effective, less efficient worker, may lose their job or 
um, have uh, less ability to obtain a job. And then impairing social functioning, that also doesn't seem very surprising, someone using that frequently would tend to be more uh, isolative. Um, it's not uh, the type of recreational drug that lends itself to increased social activity, uh, which sometimes alcohol can be, for example. And <clears throat> most scary as far as the potential harms that the report found about marijuana, for pregnant women who smoke pot, there's a strong indication of reduced birth weight, but only weak evidence of any effect on pregnancy complications for the mother or an infant's need for admission to intensive care. Now, we talked about this uh, on previous podcast, I believe it was last week's, if not the week before, where um, scientists have found that there's... Uh, very disturbingly, an increasing number of pregnant women smoking pot while they're pregnant. And you know, what they're finding is that this is reducing birth weights. The babies are being born lighter than normal. And, you know, this may be a strong indication of impaired development. So... There are lots of public health concerns, is the bottom line, in the face of uh, ever-growing uh, legalization of medical marijuana and recreational marijuana. Hopefully this report will only be the first uh, in a series of more studies that are being done in the future. All right, now... <clears throat> Next up on Psychiatry Today, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health came out with a new study that could explain how migrating to another country increases a person's risk of developing schizophrenia by altering brain chemistry. <clears throat> for various reasons that I won't point out specifically, there are a lot of there's a lot more attention to immigrants and immigration in the United States right about now. And so immigrant mental health, I think, is an important issue. But I also think that this study gives us some very important, very valuable lessons for mental health in general, regardless of uh, whether one is an immigrant or not. Now, immigrants had higher levels of the brain chemical dopamine than non-immigrants. Abnormal dopamine levels are linked to symptoms of schizophrenia. Dopamine is also connected to the body's stress response. Now, the study was published in the January issue of the journal Schizophrenia Bulletin. Schizophrenia is still a rare diagnosis, but if we can understand the factors that increase the risk of this serious illness among immigrants, we can develop strategies such as social supports to mitigate this risk. And I also would add that it tells us a lot about how the illness develops in the general population. 
So the study may be about immigrants and how it develops in that population, but I think that still helps us for studying and learning more about the disease in general, uh, regardless of who it affects, and help us to be better able to prevent it. Now, um, as Canada's population and workforce will decline without migration, a set number of immigrants to that country are accepted each year. And while it's not feasible to offer stress supports to all newcomers, the approach uh, is identifying those at highest risk and offering evidence-based interventions to prevent schizophrenia. Now, in the study, it involved a brain imaging called PET. You may be familiar with PET scans if someone you know or a family member had had to have them because they were <clears throat> diagnosed with cancer and undergoing treatment. But PET stands for positron emission tomography. It gives doctors a much, much higher level of resolution than CT scans. And uh, they, researchers applied two different approaches to examining dopamine levels in the subjects. And in Toronto, there were 56 study participants who were given a mild stress test to see its effect on dopamine release. People with schizophrenia and those at high risk release more dopamine with this test when compared to a matched healthy group of participants. Among the 25 immigrants in the study, the dopamine release was higher than 31 non-immigrant participants. This increase was related to participants' experiences of social stress, such as work overload, social pressures, or social isolation. Researchers in London showed that the synthesis of dopamine was higher in immigrants. This increase was related to the severity of symptoms among those considered at high risk of developing schizophrenia and did not occur among non-immigrants at high risk. In total, 32 immigrants and 44 non-immigrants were involved in this part of the study. Not everyone with high dopamine levels will develop schizophrenia, nor will the vast majority of migrants. Yet it is well established through population studies in Canada, the UK, and Western Europe that the risk of developing schizophrenia is higher in immigrants and their children than non-immigrants. Stress, particularly related to perceived discrimination, social isolation, and urban living, is believed to increase this risk. All right, we'll leave it there and get back to this item and explore other mental health-related news from the past week after this next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps. 
These are generally benign growths that occur from chronic sinus infection or allergies that are either undertreated or have not been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery and correction of a deviated nasal septum and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office. We use a state-of-the-art equipment so that you can see the problem. You will be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment. We believe in old-fashioned medicine, where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. You can rest assured that all options will be offered before surgery is recommended, because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today, once again with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. Continuing our discussion on the effects of dopamine levels that are affected by stress in immigrants. All right, the role of stress appears to be supported by the current findings on brain dopamine levels, uh, raising them in immigrants, increasing their risk for schizophrenia. A next logical step in studying this process would be to help regulate stress among higher-risk immigrants through social support programs and see if this reduces dopamine in the brain and prevents psychosis. Well, as far as arranging for more supports for immigrants, good luck for that happening in this country in the atmosphere we have now. However, I don't think that's what's really important about this research and not why I wanted to bring it to you. Really, I think what's important is whether you're looking at a population of recent immigrants or non-immigrants, it's important to further the research into this devastating illness, schizophrenia, uh, very mysterious as to how it develops, what really is the underlying defect that causes the common symptoms of delusions and hallucinations and confused and disordered thinking and social withdrawal and isolation and so on. But if this research into stress and how it affects dopamine levels will further our understanding of how schizophrenia develops and hopefully, therefore, lead to steps to treat it and or even better prevent it, uh, then I think it's important to 
look at it, discuss it, uh, hope that its findings will lead to um, better understanding of the illness for the broader population, not just for immigrants. Now, there's a couple of more articles that I found that relate to the effects of stress. And uh, this next one I'm going to talk to you about is the late effects of stress, new insights into how the brain responds to trauma. Um, <clears throat> this comes to us from a uh, center called the National Center for Biological Sciences. And it starts, uh, the article about the research starts with talking about uh, a typical incident. Mrs. M would never forget this one particular day. She was walking along a busy road next to the vegetable market when two hooligans zipped past on a bike. One man's hand shot out and grabbed the chain around her neck. The next instant, she had stumbled to her knees and was dragged along in the wake of the bike. Thankfully, the chain snapped and she got away with a mildly bruised neck. Though dazed by the incident, Mrs. M was fine until a week after the incident. Then the nightmares began. She would struggle and yell and fight in her sleep every night with phantom chain snatchers. Every bout left her charged with anger and often left her depressed. The episodes continued for several months until they finally stopped. How could a single stressful event have such extended consequences? Well, of course, we're talking about an example of how people come to suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, and as we know very well, nightmares are one of the most common symptoms of that illness. Nightmares about the incident, uh, but the nightmares needn't be directly about the traumatic um, incident that took place, uh, although it is very common, as in the case of this woman, that in the nightmares she is being pursued and hounded by her attacker. That's very common in PTSD victims of assault, rape, and in this case, robbery, and so on. Okay, now a new study by Indian scientists has gained insights into how a single instance of severe stress can lead to delayed and long-term psychological trauma. The work pinpoints key molecular and physiological processes that could be driving changes in brain architecture. The team of researchers have shown that a single stressful incident can lead to increased electrical activity in a brain region known as the amygdala. And this is not surprising. We know already that um, the amygdala, a very small structure in the middle of the brain, is more or less our fear center. Uh, this is a, a region of the brain that ascribes emotional valence to fearful stimuli. This activity in this area 
sets in late. In other words, occurring days after a single stressful episode, about 10 days they found, and is, is dependent, the activity that is, is dependent on a molecule known as the N-methyl D-aspartate receptor, or the NMDA, an ion channel protein on nerve cells known to be crucial for memory functions. The amygdala, a small almond-shaped group of nerve cells located deep within the temporal lobe of the brain, is known to play key roles in emotional reactions to stress, memory, and making decisions. Changes in the amygdala are linked to the development of post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a disorder that develops in delayed fashion after a harrowing experience. Previously, the researchers in the same group had shown that a single instance of acute stress had no immediate effects on the amygdala in rats. But 10 days later, the animals began to show increased anxiety and delayed changes in the architecture of their brains, especially the amygdala. They showed that the study system is applicable to PTSD. And this delayed effect after a single episode of stress is reminiscent of what happens in PTSD patients, where we already know that the amygdala is hyperactive, as it were, in these patients. But no one knows, as of now, what is going on in that area. Investigations revealed major changes in the microscopic structure of the nerve cells in the amygdala. Stress seems to have caused the formation of new nerve connections called synapses in this region of the brain. However, until now, the physiological effects of these new connections were unknown. In their recent study, the team has established that the new nerve connections in the amygdala lead to heightened electrical activity in this region of the brain. Most studies on stress are done on a chronic stress paradigm with repeated stress or with a single stress episode where changes are looked at, it, looked at immediately afterwards, like a day later. Uh, this work is unique in that they show a reaction to a single instance of stress, but at a delayed time point. Furthermore, a well-known protein involved in memory and learning, called NMDAR, has been recognized as one of the agents that bring about these changes. Blocking the NMDAR during the stressful period not only stopped the formation of these new synapses, it also blocked the increase in electrical activity at these synapses. So perhaps what they have here is, for the first time, a molecular mechanism that shows what is required for the culmination of events 10 days after a single stress. In their study, they blocked the NMDA receptor during stress, but they would like to know if blocking it after stress 
can also block the delayed effects of the stress? And if so, how long after the stress can they block the receptor to define a window for therapy? And to just bring this from esoteric brain physiology research to a real-world benefit applicable to patients who suffer and need help, the implications of this research are that if they refine this idea and method and technique and test it out and find it helpful, then people who have been exposed to severe trauma could potentially be administered a treatment that would prevent the onset of PTSD, potentially prevent it, or at least mitigate the symptoms, if not prevent it outright. And that, I definitely think, would be a huge development. Uh, because right now the situation is when there is a person or persons exposed to severe trauma, about all we know is that some people will go on to develop PTSD, others will not. Uh, as yet, we have no way of knowing in advance who would or wouldn't go on to develop it. Uh, we know that sometimes intensive counseling right after a trauma might mitigate the symptoms. But as far as any biological mechanism to intervene, that would be huge. Um, you know, I would argue that if something a reasonable sort of prophylactic treatment could be developed to prevent the onset of PTSD after an exposure to a severe trauma, it should be offered to anyone who experiences a trauma like that. Um, again, since at this point we're not yet able to predict uh, who may go on to develop PTSD after a severe trauma or not. Uh, so to me, that is the value of this research. Hopefully, they'll take this further and refine that technique. All right, well, time for one more commercial break. On the other side of that, we're going to continue to discuss issues of trauma. And this time, we'll be going over an article that talks about how sleep helps process traumatic experiences. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps. These are generally benign growths that occur from chronic sinus infection or allergies that are either undertreated or have not been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery and correction of a deviated nasal septum and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office. We use a state-of-the-art equipment so that you can see the problem. You will be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment. We believe in old-fashioned medicine, where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. You can rest assured that all options will be offered before surgery is recommended, because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. 
Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, your host, Dr. Scott Bay. We are talking about how sleep can help process traumatic experiences. This research comes to us from the University of Zurich. Does sleep help process stress and trauma, or does it actually intensify emotional reactions and memories of the event? This previously unanswered question is highly relevant for the prevention of trauma-related disorders, such as post-traumatic stress disorder, how extremely distressing experiences are processed right at the outset can influence the further course and development of post-traumatic stress disorders, much as we talked about the previous study before the break. PTSD patients experience highly emotional and distressing memories or even flashbacks where they feel as if they are experiencing their trauma all over again. Remember the example in the study we talked about earlier, the woman who kept experiencing the chain being snatched from around her neck in her dreams. Sleep could play a key role in processing what trauma victims have suffered. The study conducted by a team from the Department of Psychology at the University of Zurich and the Psychiatric University Hospital in Zurich has now tackled the question as to whether sleep during the first 24 hours after a trauma has a positive impact on highly emotional distress and memories related to traumatic events. In the lab, the researchers showed test subjects a traumatic video The recurring memories of the images in the film that haunted the test subjects for a few days were recorded in detail in a diary. Virtually out of the blue, the test subjects would see a snapshot of what they had seen in their mind's eye, reawakening the unpleasant feelings and thoughts they had experienced during the film. The quality of these memories resembles those of patients' suffering from post-traumatic stress disorders. Other than after a traumatic event, however, they reliably disappear after a few days. Study participants were randomly assigned to two groups. One slept in the lab for a night after the video while their sleep was recorded via an electroencephalograph, that's EEG, which measures brain waves, The other group remained awake. Results revealed that people who slept after the film had fewer and less distressing 
recurring emotional memories than those who are awake. This supports the assumption that sleep may have a protective effect in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. Now, when I first read this article about this research, at this point, my thought was, that's great, but if someone's gone through a very serious traumatic experience, how are you going to tell them to say, oh, ah, just get a good night's sleep tonight, you'll be fine? That doesn't seem like it would work, does it? Well, let's read on. On the one hand, sleep can help weaken emotions connected to an existing memory, such as fear caused by traumatic experiences. On the other hand, sleep also helps to contextualize the recollections, to process them informationally, and store these memories. However, this process presumably takes several nights. According to the authors of the study, recommendations on early treatments and dealing with traumatized people in the early phase are few and far between. Their approach offers an important non-invasive alternative to the current attempts to erase traumatic memories or treat them with medication. The use of sleep might prove to be a suitable and natural early prevention strategy. But again, that presumes that someone who's just had a severely traumatic experiences, experience is going to be able to sleep. And if not, what do you do? Do you give them something to help them sleep? And uh, if the sleep is somehow chemically induced by medication, is it going to have the same beneficial effects? So the study may answer some questions, but it leaves others unanswered. Nonetheless, it is important that research into how to prevent PTSD in patients who suffer trauma is advancing, uh, much like the study we talked about in the earlier segment of the podcast. <clears throat> and next, I have yet another article that I found to bring to you about the effects of trauma and stress in the brain. This one tells us that witnessing fear in others can physically change the brain. And scientists say observing trauma has PTSD implications. This comes to us from Virginia Tech University, uh, where scientists have discovered that observing fear in others may change how information flows in the brain. The results of their study were to be published online on January the 4th in the journal Neuropsychopharmacology. The <clears throat> negative emotional experience leaves a trace in the brain which makes us more vulnerable. Traumatic experiences, even those without physical pain, are a risk factor for mental disorders. PTSD is an anxiety disorder that develops, as we said before, in some people, but not all, after a shocking, scary, or dangerous event. Most people who live through such events do not develop PTSD, but about 7 or 8 out of every 100 people 
will experience PTSD at some point in their lives. That, according to the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs National Center for PTSD. And PTSD doesn't stop at direct victims of illness, injury, or a terrorist attack. It can also affect their loved ones, caregivers, even bystanders, the people who witness or learn about others' suffering. While a traumatic event may not immediately lead to the disorder, it increases the odds of developing the disorder. There's evidence that children who watched media coverage of the September 11 terrorist attacks are more likely to develop PTSD later in life when subjected to another adverse event. According to a 2008 RAND Corporation assessment of multiple studies of PTSD and depression in previously deployed service members, people who heard about a serious incident, such as a gunfire exchange, were just as likely to develop PTSD as the people who actually lived through the incident. In previous studies, research found that rodents who witnessed stress in their counterparts but did not experience it firsthand formed stronger than normal memories of their own fear experiences, a behavioral trait relevant to some humans who experience traumatic stress. Based on these findings, the researchers investigated whether the part of the brain responsible for empathizing and understanding the mental state of others, called the prefrontal cortex, physically changes after witnessing fear in another. Once the researchers understand the mechanism of this change in the brain, in the person who has these experiences, they could potentially know how something like post-traumatic stress disorder is caused. Interesting insight. So those of you who have witnessed someone else going through a trauma are yourself potentially uh, a candidate for developing PTSD. Finally, on tonight's podcast, a stress in the workplace update. Prolonged exposure to work-related stress is thought to be related to certain cancers. For men, prolonged exposure to work-related stress has been linked to an increased likelihood of lung, colon, rectal, and stomach cancer and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. This is among the results obtained by researchers at the University of Montreal that conducted the first study to assess the link between cancer and work-related stress perceived by men throughout their working life. Results were recently published in the journal Preventive Medicine. On average, the participants had four jobs, with some holding up to a dozen or more during their working lifetime. Significant links to five of the 11 cancers considered in the study were revealed. The links were observed in men who had been exposed to 15 to 30 years of work-related stress, and in some cases more than 30 years. A link between work-related stress and cancer wasn't found in those who had held stressful jobs for less than 15 years. Most stressful jobs were firefighter, industrial engineer, aerospace engineer, mechanic foreman, vehicle and railway equipment repair worker. 
the same individual, the stress varied depending on the job held. Researchers were able to document changes in perceived work-related stress. The study also showed that perceived stress isn't limited to high workload and time constraints. Customer service, sales commissions, responsibilities, the participants' anxious temperament, job insecurity, financial problems, challenging or dangerous work conditions, employee supervision, interpersonal conflict, and a difficult commute were also all sources of stress listed by the participants. One of the biggest flaws in previous cancer studies is that none of them assessed work-related stress over a full working lifetime, making it impossible to determine how the duration of exposure to work-related stress affects cancer development. This study shows the importance of measuring stress at different points in an individual's working life. The results raise the question of whether chronic psychological stress should be viewed as a public health issue. But the results are as yet unsubstantiated because they're based on the summary assessment of work-related stress for a given job. There's now a need for epidemiological studies based on reliable stress measurements repeated over time and that take all sources of stress into account. Still sobering findings as far as increasing all those different types of cancers. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. I hope you found this information I brought to you interesting, and I hope that until we get together next time, you have a wonderful and stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening.